0: Oh my goodness. Hey guys, how we doing? Thanks for showing up on a holiday weekend. I love I love this church. It's uh, like when when we're traveling. I love that so many people are tuning in. Hey everybody, hope you're having a great time. Um, but I also love that you know in the midst of a really of, of, you know it used to be a four day weekend, but school got out early, so it's just a three day weekend. Uh, y'all are here to worship Jesus and to connect with each other and to find out how your life makes a difference. I really really um, I'm just so grateful for you. We're gonna jump in today, but to do that, I want to tell you just a quick uh, story. I I recently took an adventure with a few guys. Uh, uh, we got away from Kansas City. We went hiking in the mountains of Utah. Don't worry for the guys that were on the trip here. I'm not telling any stories. <laughs> One of the incredible hikes that we took was this thing called Angel's Landing. It's a, it's a, an epic hike. It's, it's a legendary. Over the past few weeks that I've been back from this trip, many of you have come up to me and said, I, too, have hiked on Angel's Landing and have experienced how just absolutely bonkers that thing is. If you don't know what Angel's Landing is, it's a, it's a gnarly trail because you summit up, you know, the side of a, of a mountain, and then you get to this path That is literally just a spine of a mountain that connects two mountaintops together. And you walk along this this edge uh, that connects you to another peak. Here's the edge, just in case you wanted to know what it looks like. So you walk walk this right here, and you get all the way up there. And it's like this, pretty much the whole way up there. It's so dangerous, and it's so um, hard to get to that early settlers called it Angel's Landing because they said only an angel could land at the top of that mountain. And then the New Deal took place, and Americans put our ingenuity together and said, we're going to figure it out. So this was the moon before the moon was the moon. This is 1940s we put this together. Uh, I, I, um, I, I, like, I like this trail because um, the last leg of it, it's kind of grueling, and the last leg of it, you get to this, and it's just sh- kind of straight up, and it's a 1,000-foot drop this way, 800 feet that way. It, if if uh, Angel's Landing was a novel, it would be called Climb and Punishment, is what it'd be called. <laughs> it's dangerous. There's a mortality rate. So it's not recommended that anyone who uh, climbs this, who's a- at all got a tinge of, of fear of heights, would do this. Or if you're not properly equipped. And so despite all these factors, despite the pleading of all of our wives to not do this trip, we, we, took, we took on Angel's Landing. And I think this trail might have been the most fun that I've had in my life in the past five, six years. As we progressed the trail, I had this overwhelming sense of like true accomplishment. I was happy to know that as I kept walking, the trail was not as unsettling to me as the pictures made it seem like it would be or as other people who had climbed it told me it would feel. I heard the voice of my wife in the background kept saying, you hold on to that chain for dear life or else I will kill you. (laughs) And I did. And as we kept moving, I just had this sense of like conquering something that had been overwhelming. We got to the top, all of us safely, and we were greeted with some of the most spectacular views in uh, national parks here. This is uh, just a stock photo of Angels Landing. The real ones that we took are much better than this, but you know, I don't want to out the pictures that I took as my skilled photography would disappoint you. Um, It's just an incredible, incredible experience. We spent maybe like 30 or 40 minutes. No, no, put it back up, put it back up. I mean, you can't, you know, gosh, come on. We spent like 30 or 40 minutes at the top of this landing. Kind of just all looking out. And you'd, you'd circle, and you would look and see the things that are happening. There's, there were birds flying below you, and there's waterfalls, and there's people, like you can see them all out, and there's rock climbers on the other side of the canyon. and It was just breathtaking. And after like 30 or 40 minutes, some of the people in our crew were like, well time to go. And I was like, man, I don't want to leave. Like, do you know how hard I had to psych myself up to get up here? Like, do you know all the nightmares that I had falling to my death and my dreams on this, these rocks? Like, I, I want to feel the angels land on my shoulders, is what I want to feel for, for the, the pleasure of God on this hike. See, life is good On a mountain. Okay, you can take it down now. Life is good on a mountain. Anyone who has ever summited a mountain, anyone who has ever overcome a fear or a challenge, you've gotten to the top of something, you know the feeling that you have where you accomplish your goals, you get what you want. Life feels good, doesn't it? I'm a beach guy, but this trip made me feel more like a mountain guy. I kind of get the mountains. The mountains are where we feel the, the air. I heard one pastor tell me this. The air between us and God gets a little bit thinner. So we can feel his presence a little bit more. We're gonna close this uh, teaching, series of teachings through the book of Luke today. So you think about the good life. And I wanna to come to a mountaintop experience that the disciples had with Jesus, where life was really, really good. And this high point experience came on the heels of a really low point declaration for them. Jesus has just told his disciples that he's on a mission that's going to require that he pay the ultimate sacrifice, that, that that he would give up his own life. But he told them, but I will also rise again. And then he invited his disciples to join him. He said, you also are to imitate this life and this type of mission with your life. You should think about your life as serving other people. And then Jesus, Jesus said this to them. He said, for whoever wants to save, their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. And then he asked this question, this really pointed question, this kind of, uh, you know, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? What good is it if you get everything you wanted only to lose yourself in the process? Jesus has in mind in this, this story that we're about to look at accessing the good life. I think this, that Luke chapter 9 is the most clear example that Jesus lays out all, all, for all of us to see what the good life looks like. He says, do you want the good life, the life that your heart longs for? He says, well, it's going to require that we take an adventure, and you allow me to lead. He's, he's saying, anyone trying to help themselves won't be helped at all. In fact, Jesus tells us, self-sacrifice is the way, it's his way To finding the life that we really truly want. And he says, what would it do for us to get the things that we want but lose ourselves? And then Luke tells us, here's what I want you to join me today, Luke chapter 9 verse 28. Uh, Luke picks up the story. Here's the next words. He says, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. Now, I love this detail right here. I love that it's about eight days after Jesus said this. And and it's it's vague because Luke recorded down the memories of the disciples after the resurrection of Jesus happened, and probably a couple of years even after uh, Jesus had ascended and they had been living their lives. It just reminds me that real people saw this, and real people recounted to Luke this story. Look at verse 29. As Jesus was praying... Now, this gets kind of crazy. Stay with me. If you're, like, not in the supernatural, just hang with me for a moment. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. Can anyone relate? You got kids, and they listen to you overnight, and you start to fall asleep, right? He says, they were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men standing with him. Peter's like, man, Jesus wants to pray, and when Jesus prays, it's a long time, and we'll admit it. We dozed off a little bit, but we saw this light, and it woke us up, And once we realized we weren't actually dreaming, but we were fully awake, we realized we were looking at Jesus' glory. And we saw that he was talking to Elijah and to Moses. Verse 33, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is, what's this word, everybody? Good for us to be here. Peter thinks that he's found the good life at the top. Of a mountain. Now um, this is a spectacular story. When I got to the top of Angel's Landing, it was literally just chipmunks and people with cameras. There was no voices from heaven. There was no angels landing on my shoulders. It was just like us at the top. What is happening in this story where Jesus takes his disciples to a, a mountaintop and then he changes his appearance, his clothes start to radiate, and dead prophets show up to have a conversation with him. And they also are in this light. What? Have you ever, like, this is one of the most bonkers stories of Jesus' whole entire life. What does this mean? What is going on here? Um, this, that's one of the questions that I think whenever we come to the Bible, we can, we can ask. What does this even mean? Like, why is this even here? And I think this is here, and, and, and it's, this shares with us what, we, what it means If we look at a couple of the perspectives that are actually found within the story, we can learn, what does this even mean for the good life? Uh, There are three perspectives that are found that Luke records for us here in the story that shape how we understand the good life from this mountaintop experience. And the first perspective is the perspective that I think I relate to and resonate with the most. It's Peter's perspective. Peter, Peter says this. He says, Master, this is good good for us to be here. Peter is like, this is exciting. We're, we're seeing your glory with our real eyes. We're, we're seeing finally what you're capable of doing. You're bringing the great dead ones back to life. What a moment. We've never experienced anything like this in our lives. This is incredible. So Peter proposes a plan. Here's his plan. He says this. He says, let us put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter's like, I'm a blue-collar guy. I can get you a house real fast. Let's live on the top of this mountain as long as we can keep this emotion and this experience going. Because this is amazing. This feels like all that I want out of life is just to be here with you. For Peter, his perspective on what this all meant was simply this. He had finally had an experience with Jesus that made him feel the good life. For, for Peter, the good life is simply this. It's, it's an experience with Jesus. When we think about the good life, when we, when we think about what our hearts are after, so many of us go towards those moments of ecstasy, those moments of feeling the supernatural. There are experiences in my life that have literally taken my breath away. You, you know what these are. S- somehow they mostly have to do with feeling small or holding small things. holding a a child for the first time. I remember just losing my breath in that moment. Weirdly enough, holding a puppy for the first time did the same thing for me, so I don't really know what that means. Getting to the top of of a viewpoint, a vista, takes your breath away. Seeing your bride walk down the aisle can take your breath away. There are these moments in life and I thank God for them, where God has met me in my emotions, and I knew that he was moving in my life. I knew that he was calling me into something deeper. I wonder if you've had an experience with Jesus. Many of us have. This is how our faith begins. God invites us into faith by using some sort of experience that is supernatural. A prayer is answered. A word is spoken to us. A miracle happens. I'm so glad that we get to experience with Jesus that this life we can have the closeness of God. Is anybody else here grateful that God actually does encounter our everyday lives with his supernatural presence? Isn't that an amazing thing? Am I the only one? Okay, great, because I'm not down on that. I'm not down on that. The good life, many of us think, is an experience with Jesus, and God does give us experiences. Peter imagines that His job was to keep the experience going, to kind of keep throwing a log on the fire of this experience with God to make sure that it doesn't go out. That if just he can get this thing to last a little bit longer, he'll experience the fullness of his life. It's like me at the top of Angel's Landing. Um, Dan, you can't stay up here forever. The tent that you set up is way down there below. Know the views are pretty, but I know you feel like you can conquer anything right now, but... I know you feel close to God, even, but you can't stay here. (laughs) And how many of us know that you can't stay at the mountaintop of the experience with God forever? The problem with chasing experiences with Jesus is that they're often momentary. I think um, that's what's missing in our pursuit of spiritual emotionalism. Is when we see the transcendent glory of Jesus, yes, it's an experience in our lives that's unlike any other. But this isn't what Jesus imagined the good life being or the end result of our faith being some sort of um, uh, living situation with a Jesus and me catharsis at the middle of it. And we know that this isn't what Jesus is going for because of the next words that are found in the story. This is what Luke in verse 33 records. He says, Peter, he didn't know what he was saying. Now these parentheses introduce us to a second interpretation or a second perspective of what this moment meant in in real time or, or another idea about what was happening in this story. It's Luke's perspective, the author's perspective. If Peter is the guy who didn't see this coming and woke up and saw the glory of Jesus, Luke is the guy who should have seen this coming. Luke seems to want us to know that this moment on the mountain with the three disciples and the two prophets and a glowing Jesus, it's, it's all about one very simple thing. For, for Luke, it's about Exodus. Right, that's a left turn for all of us. Not, not one of you were like, we're going to Luke, that's great. We're going to now talk about Exodus. But um, please, 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 it's Memorial Day weekend. Don't let me lose you here on a little bit of historical uh biblical stuff all right you with me everybody with me this is a great time to just make sure your your spouse is not sleeping make sure they're paying attention just nudge them just to say hey Dan's going to get nerdy for a second we're going to be better off for it all right just whatever you need to do in the seats to stay with me exodus genesis exodus right it's the second book of the bible it's about how god's people were enslaved in a land far from eden by a ruler far from god and how god delivered his people. God raised up Moses to bring the Israelites out of bondage. God used Moses to tell Pharaoh, you remember that whole thing, let my people, sorry, I just need the crowd participation to make sure you don't, your eyes don't gloss over on this history lesson. All right? God used Moses to uh, tell not a lot of people go, he doesn't. And so there's plagues. And one of the plagues, you remember this? One of the plagues, it's a really weird thing. There's this There's this angel of death that's going to come and, and, and kill the firstborn in each house as it passes over, unless the people in that house have done what God said, which is to take a lamb without blemish, to kill it, to take its blood and to sprinkle it over the doorposts of the house. The, the people did this. Those who trusted in God's word did this, And the angel of death spared the firstborn son in those homes. But the, but the homes in which there was no blood, there was death. This is exodus. It is wild. It is strange. It is profound. Moses was the deliverer. Moses was the bringer of the people out of Egypt into the promised land. Which is literally out of their worst days and into the good life that God promised. Moses used to go up and down the mountain. You know, this is how the Israelites got the Ten Commandments. Moses went up to the mountain, and there was a time where he saw God, and his face shone as he came back down the mountain. He was still glowing with the glory of God. And then there's Elijah. Elijah was the prophet of God who delivered the Israelites from the guiles of the foreign gods. He waged war on them and he did mighty deeds and he also went up the mountain to meet with God and he saw God's glory revealed to him too. Moses and Elijah are present with Jesus because they are two of the most important servants of God in Israel's history. There are, um, in our day, photographs of different world leaders in the same place holding what we call summits. What is that? That is a summit is the top of the mountain. It's when all of these leaders come together, and it's like this, this type of who's who getting together to have important conversations. What we find in Luke chapter 9 is the summit of all summits. You know what I'm saying? The most important, three most important people to have ever lived, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, are all together discussing Matters of eternal consequence. The topic of this conversation at the summit is also Exodus. All these details Luke included as he wrote this vignette. He, he, he's conjuring up for us in his writing of, of what this was like. He's, he's reminding us of an Exodus motif. Goes up the mountain. His face is aglow. His clothes change. And then he talks about the conversation. If I haven't convinced you that this is all framing for us Exodus as a, as a, as a, as a theme, here's what, here's what uh, Luke writes next. He says, they spoke about his, Jesus' departure. In the Greek, it literally is Exodus. That's the Greek word, is Exodus. So if we all spoke Greek, we'd get it right away. They spoke about his Exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment, which is a prophet word, at Jerusalem. God's city. I, um, I, I imagine this must have astonished Moses and Elijah to have Jesus explain how he would fulfill all of the law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. How Moses' whole life was now being fulfilled by this one person, Jesus, who God had sent to this world to bring about full freedom under God's rule. Full freedom in God's holy place. Full, free, good life where God dwells with his people. I imagine Moses just being flabbergasted at the goodness of God that his whole life led up as a precursor to what Jesus was going to do. And I imagine Elijah. I imagine Elijah. Similarly, being mind-blown, saying all the things that we prophesied, you're the one who will bring them all to its conclusion. We started the series on Easter, and I shared with you the story that Luke records at the end of this book about the two disciples who are leaving Jerusalem, going on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus shows up, and he introduces himself to them. And he says to them, was it not told to you that the Son of Man must die and then rise again on the third day? And then Luke tells us this detail. Then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he began to tell them how all the scriptures were pointing to himself. Jesus kind of has like one conversation that he's really good at. It's telling the people who have lived before and who are coming now, how everything in the entire history of the world is all about him. It's the type of thing that makes us as a church pretty confident that when we hang those two words behind this stage, Jesus first. Is it still there? Okay, thank God it's still there. When we hang those words, we can have some sort of assurance to know that this is true. Because the greatest people in the world heard from Jesus how their very lives were instrumental in Jesus living his great life so what's the point, according to Luke? Why is he bringing up this Exodus motif? What's his perspective all about? And for Luke, he writes so that the reader is going to see that Jesus has the power to deliver us from whatever it is that keeps us from God. L- listen, listen, Jesus, this is what Luke wants us to know. Jesus, his death and resurrection are like to us an Exodus in a new way. If I can say it more, more plainly, uh, for Luke, the good life is freedom from sin and death. Luke writes that we know that only Jesus has the power to free us from the things in our life that would entrap us and enslave us and and keep us tied down. He is a liberator who sets the captives free from the ultimate enemy, who is the devil. Jesus is leading us on this ultimate exodus, deliverance from sin and death into God's forever promised land, into paradise. And just like it's true that Jesus will give us an experience that touches our lives and helps us believe in him, Jesus can and will loose the chains that bind your soul if you trust in him. Addictions, dysfunctions, disorder, injustice, all of them bow at the feet of King Jesus Luke has been telling anyone who has ears to hear this same story ever since the beginning of Jesus' story. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus himself goes to the synagogue. He reads the the Torah, and here's here's what he writes, or here's what he reads. Jesus says this, and he says, this is my mission. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind." to set the oppressed free, to proclaim this is the year of the Lord's favor. Good news, freedom, set free, favor. This is what Jesus has come to do, to set free those who are held in captive by sin, unforgiveness, to restore those who have been dealt injustices, and to bless those who are indebted. It's also in Luke chapter 4, just a couple verses earlier than this, I think it's four verses earlier, That Jesus himself wins a battle with the devil in the wilderness. Shows us that's the enemy that Jesus is fighting. See, Moses fought Pharaoh. Elijah fought Jezebel. But Jesus fights Satan. And he wins. So you and I can walk out of our chains and into his freedom. Is that good news? I think that would be enough if that's all this passage meant. That we can have an experience with God that changes our life, that we can have freedom from sin and deliverance from that that which which enslaves us. But there's a third perspective in the story. It's the final perspective. Because as Peter is actually saying the words, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let me build you tents, one for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses so that we can stay here forever. A cloud descends upon, well, let's read it. Here's what it says. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. This is more Exodus imagery. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. It's one thing to know what Peter thought this whole thing meant. It's another thing to know what Luke thought this meant. It's a really good thing to know what God thinks this means. There's more loaded imagery within these two sentences about the tabernacle, God's Shekinah glory, the spirit of God overshadowing his people. But but just to help us all get it and to simplify all of this, we can ask the question, what does God think the good life is? And to God, the good life is found in simply listening to Jesus. To knowing who Jesus is, my beloved son, chosen by me. You can receive all that your heart longs for if you listen to him. For Moses, God chose his people and said, listen to my commands. For Elijah, God chose his prophet and said, listen to my whisper. But in Jesus, God has revealed his chosen son and said, listen to him. Look at what happens at the end of this. When the voice had spoken, they, Peter, James, John, found that Jesus was alone. Now, for for really practical reasons, this just means Elijah and Moses had left, but I think there's a spiritual significance to this too. When they found that Moses and Elijah had left, Jesus was all alone. There, I think there's a sense in which Luke is using this word to mean unrivaled, to mean that he was supreme, that he was singularly great. In the history of humanity, Jesus stands alone, unique, He is the one that God chose to liberate us from the enemy's schemes. God chose Jesus to dwell with us and bring his presence to us. God chose Jesus alone to show us the path to where our heart really longs for. To show us the path home. I think this is what Peter was getting at. Jesus, up here on this mountain, we've seen your glory. It makes us want to make this place our home. I think this is what Luke was getting at. When Moses and Elijah came, those were the people who showed the Israelites where their home was with God. But here, God chose Jesus. He made it very clear that if you want the good life at home with me, listen to my son. Listen to Jesus. Let his voice cut through the noise and listen to what he tells you. Okay, let me make this really practical for us for a second because I I think this is a crazy story. I've read it multiple times and never really truly understood it until recently. And when I realized the the singular focus of God for this story is that we would just pay attention to what Jesus' voice says to us. It felt to me two things. It felt incredibly cheap and incredibly hard. Cheap in the sense of like, if if I wanna hear Jesus' voice, God has already provided for that to be written down for me. I can hear Jesus' voice. That's the cheap part. Like, I already have that. The hard part for me is actually listening to him. There is no, I don't know if you feel this way, but there are no shortage of voices to listen to in this world. You, you can podcast your way through your day with other voices in your ear speaking to you for the next millennium. I, I find, if I can just go on a limb for a moment, I have a hard time deciphering the voice of Jesus from the competing voices that I hear. Like, I want to hear Jesus, I want to hear Jesus, but but inside of me, as I'm trying to hear Jesus and what he has for me, I often have this voice of fear that kind of overlaps and crowds out Jesus. The things that I'm afraid of tend to get in the way of hearing Jesus' voice, those those nagging things, those those pesky things, those those situations in life that you have to deal with. I, I find that the future sometimes gets in the way. Fear of the future or the unknown can get in the way. Sometimes I really want to hear Jesus, but my kids ask me questions while I'm trying to hear Jesus. They're incessant. They get in the way. And I wonder, God, if I were to do that thing, what would that do to my kids? Sometimes, um, just to be super honest with you, um, I would love to hear Jesus better uh, amidst all of these things, but politicians make it hard for me to know what Jesus is is saying sometimes. And and, um, society at large is just not making it easy for me because I'm addicted to Twitter and my phone and things like that, aren't you? I I like buying things, and sometimes I want to listen to Jesus, but my mind is on commercialism. To make that even worse, sometimes I want to listen to Jesus, and you all try and be Jesus for me. Other Christians can crowd out Jesus. You know what I'm talking about? Do we get too real here with that one? the, the, The nomadic Christians who don't really have a sense of rootedness about themselves, knowing exactly how Jesus is speaking to all of us, want to tell me how Jesus is speaking to me, and And I want to look at this and I want to go, where did Jesus go? Where is his voice? How could I possibly hear the one who holds the keys to my deliverance? And it's not that I'm deaf, I'm just distracted, aren't you? It's not that we're dumb. We're just divided in our desires. We I think this is true. We want what the sirens sing about. But we know that if we take the bait, what awaits us is more chains. And so here's here's what the voice of God, I think, is telling you and me today. He, he's calling us out. Through this story, I think we put it all this way. I think, I think this is what God is saying. He's just simply saying this. Son, daughter, step into your Exodus by listening to Jesus. He's calling right now. <laughs> He's calling. I mean, was that not a perfectly timed thing? This is perfect. I mean, I hope that we don't get distracted. Because there's an exodus in our lives that God wants to bring us out of a place of bondage, out of a place of disappointment, out of a place of despair, and into a place of freedom and hope and flourishing and goodness. And the way that we get there is by tuning in our hearts to hear what Jesus says. It's an adventure unlike any other that Jesus brings us on. He'll take us to the highest mountains. He'll walk with us through the lowly valleys. He'll be our shade when the sun scorches us in the deserts. He's our rock in the midst of the storms. He's our sight when we cannot see. He's our pardon when we feel condemned. He's our future when we have no money. He's our bread when we cannot eat. He's our life when you come to die. When all fades away, Jesus stands alone, supreme in his glory, worthy of all the words of praise, because Jesus gets it all. And so the question, the perspective that really matters here is not just the perspective of Peter and Luke or God, but the perspective I want to ask you to consider today is your own perspective on Jesus. Are you listening to him with your life? Have you allowed him to take first place in all the voices that give you wisdom and and, and insights? Have you made it your goal to seek him before you make decisions or before you act? Have you set aside time in your days to hear his voice and to check in and have him speak to you? Are you listening and doing what he tells you to do? I think Jesus, if he was here, he would be leading us all on a trail of life that was metaphorically Angel's Landing. Where many of us look at that and go, heck no, not me, not doing that. Where it's hard and there's ridges and valleys and double exposed cliffs. Drops on either side that seem to threaten my life. And even if he asks us to forget all of ourselves, we know whatever he asks of us, though, is worth everything we can give. Because Jesus truly stands alone. Friends, as we close this series, I want to just leave this one phrase ringing in your mind. is that Jesus stands alone. The good life The life that you and I were designed and created by God to live is a life in which we listen to Jesus as if he was worthy of being listened to. I'm fully aware that even my voice in your life is not always worthy of being listened to, but the voice of God, the voice of Jesus, that still small whisper who speaks through his word, if that is not the utmost priority in our lives, we will miss the good life, we will gain everything in this world and forfeit our souls. But the way out of frustration and division and dysfunction and chaos and disease, disappointments and despair, it's simply to walk with your ears open. Say, God, I'm listening. What do you have for me today? One of the good ways that we celebrate Jesus' exodus is by partaking in communion. This was done when Jesus first gave his disciples this reminder of what he was about to do. This was done after the Passover supper. The Passover supper, that was a reminder of the fact that God had protected, brought freedom to those who trusted in the blood of the Lamb, who listened to God's words and obeyed them. The Passover meal pointed to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was about to give up his life to take away our sins. He told us that those who believe in him should take this bread and drink from this cup and do that by remembering that Jesus' body was broken for us. He paid the ultimate penalty for our sins. His blood was poured out so that he could bring us back to God.